Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Heidi Matthews, Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Nathanson Center on Transnational Human Rights, Crime, and Security at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. We will discuss her article, Redeeming Rape, Berlin 1945 and the Making of Modern International Criminal Law, which is a chapter in the new book, the New Histories of International Criminal Law Retrials, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Heidi. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So I, 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 I'm, I really appreciate you sending me a, a copy of your article, which I enjoyed reading very much and found really quite provocative indeed, although I, I take it that's not out of the ordinary no. for you. <laughs> um, and, and and one of the things I thought was really interesting was the way your article seems to challenge a kind of consensus feminist position on how sexual violence should be treated, uh, should be and has been treated uh, under international criminal law. So I was wondering if you could if you could talk about the a little bit about what that consensus feminist position is sort of and where it came from, how it emerged and developed over time. Yeah, so at the outset I I should you know give plenty of due credit to sort of the predecessors and um influencers of this project which started when I was a doctoral student um, at Harvard Law School. And so um, clear influences um, for people who work in the field of feminism and international law will, will, be, will have seen, uh, will include people like Janet Halley and Karen Engel, um, as well as others. And so the piece kind of draws particularly on on some of the work that that they started to do which was doing exactly what you noted was questioning uh kind of this common sense or mainstream feminist consensus about how sexual violence um should be treated in wartime um especially when it comes to international criminal law and how that project should be rolled out so for me, international criminal law has been the f- sort of focus of my work since, you know, I was in law school several years ago. Um, I ended up uh, spending some time at the special court for Sierra Leone um, and at other courts as well. And and I really sort of from the beginning, you know, really as, a, as an actual just, you know, law student recognized the centrality of feminist arguments um, about the topic and how focused they were on a sort of carceral feminist stance, right? So what's striking about international criminal law is that oftentimes, and this goes for areas outside of sexual violence, but certainly very strongly within that uh, area has been this idea that like people who would be liberals or for lack of a better word, lenient or critical of the carceral state at home domestically um, are oftentimes the same sorts of scholars and practitioners who will be working for the prosecution internationally. So there is this really interesting flip between people who consider themselves, right, so international lawyers and scholars who think of themselves as progressive at home actually taking on uh, what might be described as a bit of a conservative role internationally. And 
I think in my own work, I've seen it, anything involving sexual violence, which has become a vast area of development for international criminal law has been sort of at the forefront of that carceral impulse. And that has worried me for many years. And I wanted to sort of unpack historically what some of the intellectual assumptions or, or background commitments um, might be uh, to that kind of a position. Um, and so this piece does a bunch of things, but but one thing it does is, and I think this is, again, a, a probably a broader project, but this chapter um, really begins the project of unpacking what I've called the feminist failure narrative with respect to uh, the post-World War II international criminal tribunals. So that would include the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, which tried the major German war criminals, but also subsequent trials at Nuremberg conducted um, under Control Council Law Number 10 uh, by the Allies, namely the, um, the Americans. And there, what we see in the, in the 90s, when we get the sort of resurgence of international criminal law after the Cold War, is a real reliance on a certain story about the way that the IMT and the other uh, Nuremberg tribunals um, addressed the issue of sexual violence. And that narrative says that sexual violence uh, was not given due attention. Sometimes it says it was ignored. Uh, And in general, the story, the feminist narrative will say, well, it was ignored and not given due attention because it wouldn't have served the political interests uh, of the parties at the time. In other words, what we had at Nuremberg was victor's justice. We've all heard this for many years. This is a standard critique. And what you know came with victor's justice was the fact that we couldn't look at sexual violence because it was so ubiquitous that any attention to sexual violence on the part of the Axis would have required a sort of reflexive attention on the part of the Allies, and that was not a political pressure that they could bear. Um, And so this piece sort of takes on that narrative from a critical perspective. Mm. So to what extent has that narrative affected or sort of been articulated in the context of subsequent international criminal proceedings. I mean, there have been quite a few of them over the last several decades, both in relation to particular conflicts and also kind of the ICC as sort of an umbrella international criminal organization. How has that narrative kind of played out in that context? Yeah, so from what I mean, it's there's never a kind of a, a linear or totalizing story. And so I'm, I'm not trying to tell that sort of a story, to be clear. But in general, the trend um, for feminist lawyers and activists in the international criminal space has been A, to adopt that narrative, and B, to kind of roll that out as part of prosecution strategies. And a large part of prosecution strategy and also activism at the various courts, right? So there have been several, as you've noted, up to and including the ICC, has been to focus on producing um, ever more discrete 
crimes that have to do with sexual violence during war. So as opposed to just looking at like rape during wartime, which was clearly an international criminal offense, you know, in the thirties and forties, although some feminists have claimed that that weren't, that's not true. I, I dispute that in the article moving, uh, you know, the, the idea has been to really expand that balloon or you know, umbrella to include all sorts of things uh, from forced impregnation to rape as genocide to forced marriage is a really fascinating one, especially in the context of Sierra Leone. Um, and so to just keep expanding the range of things that count as sexual violence during wartime. And I think, you know, just to give an example, one of the really striking things about the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, um, has been the the degree to which its sort of prosecutorial philosophy has been informed by the school of Catherine McKinnon, uh, who was special gender advisor there for many years. And and that school of thought says uh, that war warlike circumstances or war circumstances are so inherently coercive that any sex act or experience that takes place in the context of war is necessarily um, non-consensual, right? So, so the idea is that actually the question of consent is totally removed when there's sex um, in war between, let's say, you know, a civilian and an opposing force, for example. Uh, and any any sex that takes place in that circumstance is sort of necessarily assaultative. Um, and so that's a, you know, at first blush seems rational, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, when we start looking at actual cases, we understand that, you know, the reality of war is much more complex. Um, uh, women oftentimes engage in different sorts of relationships that might have sexual components for a whole host of reasons um, that probably do involve coercion on some level, yet also involve choice and autonomy. And not because I'm reifying those, you know, liberal ideas. I'm not, right? But but to say that it's all quite messy and complex and it's a little bit, it's problematic from my point of view to to sort of engage any kind of sexual activity during war as necessarily assaultative. Mm, mm. So by way of terminology in international law and in your paper as well, the distinction between use in bello and use ad bellum seems important to understanding sort of the framing of the kinds of claims made around how we should think about sexual violence in wartime. And I was wondering if you could just, to the best of your ability, sort of briefly sort of explain to listeners what the difference between those two are, sort of how the sort of um, kind of consensus feminist position frames itself in relation to them and why the distinction between the two might be important for how we think more holistically about um, about sexual violence in a wartime context. Yeah, so thanks. That's a really um, important piece that is kind of the background structuring component of this chapter, but also a lot of the other work that I've done. And the idea there is is that there are actually two bodies of law that govern wartime uh, situations. 
um, or political violence situations in, in general. Um, and the sort of uh, common sense mainstream view of those two bodies of law is that they are meant to be completely separate, um, self-contained, and uh, not informing each other. Um, and as you note, those are those bodies are the use in bello and the use ad bellum. The use in bello refers to the law in war, so that refers to the specific way in which uh, combatants are permitted or not to inflict violence, um, up to and including death on opponents um, and also civilians. And then the use ad bellum is is the other prong of the law of war and that has to do with the law of war so it dictates when states um are actually in, not just emboldened but legally permitted to engage in in war um as a rightful sort of act and so uh, all of that draws heavily on the sort of um just war tradition um, and as I said, the standard narrative is that those two bodies of law are separate. The politics, or in other words, the rightness or wrongness of the resort to force in the first place, which is the use ad bellum, is not supposed to inform one's decision um, about whether or not conduct in a specific war um, is legal or not, or permissible or not, or immoral or not. Excuse me. So the reason why, so this paper is specific in some ways to sexual violence, but also indicative of a far greater um, antinomy, I suppose, for lack of a better word, within the law of war, which posits exactly what I just said, that the politics of the war, right, the ethics of going to war in the first place are not supposed to inform how you conduct the war. And that, to me, seems um, not quite defensible. <laughs> and part of the provocation of, of this particular piece is that it uses the example of sexual violence, which is kind of um, an outlier or an extreme version of uh, ethical consideration to question whether or not that distinction is actually useful. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it absolutely. A bit, a bit absolutely. Common. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, maybe talking about it in kind of a more specific context as you do in the paper could, could be helpful because you really focus specifically on the circumstances surrounding Germany and specifically German women in the sort of aftermath of the second the second world war in relation to the wartime activities of of germany and so to the extent that like listeners might not be that familiar with the story that you're telling maybe you could lay that out a little bit and explain sort of why you think it's a helpful illustration of the problematic that you described. Yes. Let me see if I can do that. And you might have to edit some of this out, but let me see. So, um, so let me start by saying that what I've called the feminist failure narrative, right? So this idea that the post-war tribunals did not adequately deal with rape and sexual violence that notion 
depends. So the way that notion is rolled out in contemporary feminist discourse and in the feminist discourse that has so heavily uh, uh, impacted uh, international criminal law over the last 30 years has been to say um, that a big part of the problem was that those tribunals, the IMT and the the other Nuremberg tribunals, um, were incapable uh, institutionally, right? So structurally of addressing rape quote unquote, on both sides of a conflict, right? And that's for obvious reasons. So uh, the allied prosecution of war crimes and crimes against humanity at the end of the Second World War was obviously simply focused on the enemy, right? So it was focused on Axis crimes, including Germany and and German and Japanese crimes uh, in particular. And and part of what so feminists lament in the early nineties until now, many feminists lament that that was sort of fundamentally unfair uh, because it left out a lot of the sexual violence that was perpetrated by allied forces, namely um, the sexual violence that was perpetrated by the Soviet army as they swept westward. Uh, in sort of April and May of 1945. Now, those accounts will say, I mean, that's that's clearly bad because of Victor's justice. And so what we need today is a system of international criminal law that is able to address gender-based violence on... Uh, what's the word for this on sort of an equal footing, right? So to level the playing field between the good guys and the bad guys, right? So what, what's really fascinating as part of the feminist claim is that we, sh- they, these feminists say we shouldn't be concerned about who was good and who was bad in 1945. Whereas the whole premise, if you read the Nuremberg judgment, right? And or judgments is that mm. the whole premise of that is to say the Germans were bad fundamentally, because of their imperialistic and racist um, uh, approach to doing politics, right? So, so it was a key part of international criminal law in, in, the, in the second half of uh, the 1940s to say, you know, it wasn't just that Germany did their war badly. So it wasn't just that they tortured people or it wasn't just that they waterboarded or whatever, you know, all these different specific violations of the use in bellow. It was fundamentally that they, and this is a, a, a quote from one of the judgments, that they usurped the form of the German state to do wrong, Right. So it was mm. a it was a really deep indictment of the way in which Germany went about its political life with regard to the rest of the world. And, and that is a claim about the use ad bellum. Right. And, claim, mm. and so my sort of one of the really basic contentions of this piece and my other work is that post 1990, with contemporary international criminal law tribunals, what we've done is we've moved away from making judgments about the use ad bellum, and we've moved toward a situation where we want to be able to make judgments about the use in bellow, right, on both sides. So we want to be able to say, doesn't matter what your politics were, 
if you torture someone, it's bad and you need to be imprisoned or whatever, punished in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. me in this piece, the feminist narrative about sexual violence has been core to that move from the ad bellum to the in bellum. And I think that move obscures and actually encourages us uh, to start looking away from the politics of specific wars towards looking at the use in bellow on all sides. And I think that's a dangerous move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it was interesting to me because it seems like, you know, it seems intuitively easy to believe that, you know, doing wrong things is wrong, whether you do those wrong things in a wartime context or not. Um, but you really kind of complicate the politics of thinking about what those wrong things were and the context in which they occurred. And more specifically, why some of the victims, quote unquote, I guess, in some respects, under the circumstances, might have had sort of mixed feelings about recognition of the harms that they suffered, given the particular context in which those harms occurred. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how it sort of it seems like it almost brings the use in bellow back into the use ad bellum in, in a weird way, or at least kind of provides a reflection of it. In some yeah. Way. So, um, excuse me. So in relation to that, I've, I was drawing again on really fantastic recent critical work by a host of um, feminist historians, including people like, Atina Grossman, uh, Elizabeth Heinemann, Mary Nolan, Wendy Lauer, Gudrun Svartz, um, women who have really been trying to unpack the complexity of gender gender roles and relationships, um, in particular in relation to law and politics during this period. And and so there's a lot going on there. But but one example I can give that I talk about in the piece um, is to say that for those women who were in some way victimized by uh, allied forces um, at the end of the war and who ended up finding themselves uh, in the GDR, so what became East Germany. Actually, they were confronted with a really interesting question (laughs) about how to interpret their suffering, which I should say I, of course, recognize as real and important, right? So a lot of uh, my critics will (laughs) say that I'm somehow, you know, denigrating or disturbing the importance of of the trauma and the pain that goes along with sexual violence. And I'm I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to point towards the political repercussions of, of that, right? So what we make politically about those stories of suffering, trauma, and pain as a, you know, bracket. Um, But those women in the GDR were really faced with an important question. They, they couldn't make, so if we were to ask them, right. And I, and I did do this uh, in several interviews uh, a few years ago that I conducted all over Germany in the East and the West with now elderly survivors of, of sexual violence and trauma during the period. If we were to ask them, you know, would you want 
for your, would you want your experience to have been dealt with in the context of a criminal trial, right? So would you want your experience to have been dealt with in the way that current day feminists suggest that it should have been? And uniformly, the response I got was sort of like, this just confounded, what are you talking about <laughs> sort of response to say, you know, A, what would that change? But also B, you know, we were living in a society that was in the midst of rebuilding itself in the midst of, and especially in the GDR, right? Figuring out what a new a sort of socially oriented politics would look like in this brand new state that was so heavily influenced uh, by the USSR at the time that it would have been practically speaking impossible to actually condemn or try any of the Soviet soldiers who were responsible for this. But, but more importantly, I think in many ways is that at the end of the day, many women, certainly not all, but many women were more committed to the political potential of a new socialist era that they would have been willing to forgo dealing with their particular trauma in terms of a criminal or prosecutorial or carceral solution. Right. So it's not at all obvious. So a lot of what's taken for granted in feminist discourses about international criminal law, but also with regard to me too. Right. And I want to be able to make that link um, is this attitude that, the stuff needs to be public, it needs to be punished, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the interests of women often will conflict with those sorts of intuitions. Mm -hmm. when one of the things I thought was interesting and provocative about the observations you made in the article was the way in which at least potentially de-emphasizing the sexual violence that occurred in the wake of World War II served to also kind of camouflage complicity or involvement in the Nazi state and the sexual violence that it perpetrated during World War oh, II. Yeah, that's true. Right. So <laughs> let me try and figure out a way of restating that. So And again, this is particularly true in the GDR, but also in the West. Um, there was a very important story about German national suffering as such. Yeah. So Germany in the period after the war, the sort of 15 to 20 year period right after the end of the war, the rebuilding of German society and sort of like, uh, you know, this idea of who the folk was and what it was going to do in the in this new world in both the East and the West really depended um, on a story about the relationship between everyday German life and Nazi Germany. We've known that for a long time. Uh, but what's really interesting to me anyway, is that that particular conversation will also often require women to sort of reimagine or reinterpret their own individual trauma as part of a story of German national suffering. So in order to understand uh, sort of um, regular German society or whatever, uh, as having been victimized by Nazi Germany, um, 
the we needed to be able to tell a story about about how that happened and and part of that involved women's um ending up being really vulnerable um and having been subjected to rapes and other other sorts of sexual violation and so in and i this elizabeth heineman's work in particular is very crucial in this regard she sort of illustrates how those women were really oftentimes ready to give up their unique sort of individual experience in favor of a larger uh, narrative about German suffering that, again, had a really important political construction to it, right? So in in some sense, I mean, maybe this is going too far, I'm not sure, but I'm tempted to say that in some ways, both in the East and the West, in obviously different directions, uh, there were, there was this sort of there is an ease with which women willingly allowed individuals, individualized stories of trauma to be taken up by larger national narratives of suffering. And that, you know, interestingly, that allowed many of these women to not have to deal with their own complicity um, in the war effort, right? And that Mm. is particularly, again, because I'm standing on the shoulders of so many um, feminist historians of Germany, that really is derived from Wendy Lauer's book, uh, which deals uh, from a couple of years ago with uh, the kind of German female complicity in, in sort of everyday rolling out of the National Socialist regime. Yeah. So, so, so Heidi, in, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect briefly on how this kind of reframing of thinking about sexual violence in relation to use ad bello as, or kind of acts perpetrated, violent acts perpetrated in in the course of war, um, should inform the way that we think about how we pursue international criminal law more broadly. In other words, you know, if if it's if it's too easy and not sufficient to think only about the rightness or wrongness of particular actions taken in in wartime, how might we use that insight to reframe the way we think about prosecuting crimes of war more broadly? So that's the, what, $100,000 question, I suppose. But um, yeah, I mean, I have some intuitions um, and some sort of tentative thoughts on that. It's something I've been t- thinking about for a long time. I think the the most important part about a question, that specific question would be to actually put that on the table. And that because it runs so contrary and so deeply anathema to the common sense um, of people who work in the realm of, of the law of war and international criminal law, that it's sort of like a third rail that no one wants to touch, right? And so you'll one will be immediately, you know, put to the side for even suggesting uh, that the use ad bellum and the use in bello, you know, might inform one another. I think it's certainly a much more coherent moral and sort of ethical story we can tell if we have a reason uh, for addressing specific violations of the law in war. So that can include anything from rape or sexual violence, again, to like something like waterboarding or something that might have no sexual component to it. 
um, as being dependent in some way on the on the on the war as it's rolled out. And and not to, I mean, I do think it's important to go back to like the cliche of talking about the, you know, um, nuclear weapons, right? And there's been a long. I talk about this at the end of the paper, and it might be the most controversial part of the paper that I, I do actually need to flesh out more in a, in a separate article, I think. But this notion that if, if we're going to go down the road of somebody like Michael Walzer, right, who's been writing for years um, about this concept of supreme emergency. So the idea that if a society finds itself in a situation where really the fundamental tenets of that society are questioned by a really fucking bad regime right then it may be the case and and you know the international court of justice has effectively sided with him on this in the nuclear weapons reference it might be the case that no you have to nuke an enemy if they're just so bad that their winning cannot be survived and that was the exact sort of rhetoric that was used um with respect to the Nazis, and I don't, I don't think it's helpful for us, uh, you know, in the 21st century to pretend that the rhetoric we use to justify actions against the Nazis, including their criminal prosecution, uh, you know, it's not, it's not tenable to say that, well, that was special when we're then relying on that precedent to prop up current day international criminal law doesn't make sense right so so if you want to be you know consistent um about the morality of of international action with respect to criminal law my suggestion is that you actually really need to take into consideration the substantive political commitments of your enemy for lack of a better word right um and you know and that's scary (laughs) Because that requires hard decisions, but you know, in my view, anything less is 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 not that intellectually honest. Mm. Mm. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and for your excellent chapter. Um, I really encourage people to check it out, and I look forward to reading more of Thank your you work so in the much. near and future. I should say to people too, it's a, it's a fantastic book that was put together by Amy Talgren and Thomas Guterres. They did fantastic work, including prying the chapter from my cold, dead hands at a late date. So, so very much. Thank you to them as well. Awesome. Rudolf Hess. That will be entered as a plea of not guilty. Joachim von Ribbentrop. The enemies in the Anklage for not guilty.